you turn to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? That's what everyone tells us. What makes it so wonderful? Is it putting up all the lights and decorations during this month that we don't put up at any other time of the year? Is it eating the food and drinking the drinks that we consume during this most wonderful time of the year that we usually don't eat or drink at any other time of the year? Is it watching movies or consuming entertainment? Maybe only reading certain books during this season that we save for this season? Is it attending or planning parties in in just greater frequency this time of the year? You know, you, you probably, like me, have invitations to more parties than you normally do. Is it buying and wrapping and giving and receiving gifts to give more people than we do at any time of the year? Is it spending money at this time of the year like we, like we don't normally do at any other time of the year? Is it, is it being lazier with greater justification? It's the holidays. You get to be lazy. It's okay. But at the same time, we're also busier. Maybe it's taking more time off from work or at least being less productive. Is that what makes this the most wonderful time of the year? Singing certain songs, listening certain music, putting candles and beans in jars and lighting them up that we only do at this time of the year, wishing for snow and cold. All of this makes up the most wonderful time of the year, at least according to our social media feeds. They don't hear me being a Grinch. Like, I love it too. Pass the eggnog, pass the pie, pass the hot chocolate. I think I've drank drink four cups of hot chocolate in the last week compared to zero cups the rest of the year. Like, why all of a sudden do I want hot chocolate? Because it's the most wonderful time of the year. Drink hot chocolate. Snuggle by the fire and watch movies and read books together. And with our tendency to romanticize and saturate this season with nostalgia and good feelings based on very silly things like hot chocolate, crazy movies, and fudge, it's even more essential for us as a church with great diligence and intentionality to stop. To just stop for at least this 90 minutes together. Hopefully for more time than this. And check our hearts and check our minds and make sure we're not basing our greatest hopes and joys in transient things like decorations and sweets and Hallmark movies. Brent McCracken wrote this week about the formulaic Hallmark movies, how not only are they producing these really predictable, romantically cheesy movies at a greater rate, 33 new ones just this year alone, but ratings are going higher and higher. And while we, we, you know, some of us might love to make fun of these predictable plot lines, there's this overworked female executive in the city, can't find love. She gets invited to some holiday excursion in Vermont or Montana, where she's at a party and she meets this lumberjack or some dude dressed in flannel. And at first they don't like each other, but then something happens about halfway through the movie. Maybe she's putting up decorations and she falls and he catches her and they look at each other. And now they want to love each other. But then enters the villain, the ex-husband, the ex-boyfriend, who might throw the things off the rails. Will they find true love? Well, of course they'll find true love at the end of the movie. They will be kissing. They will be in the snow. There will be children singing carols inside of a log cabin with a fire roaring. There will be a dog frolicking in the snow at some point. And and, and as soon as it goes off, here comes another one. Every two hours, 24-7. You can get your full. Now, I'm not hating on that. Maybe, maybe you love to make fun of it. Maybe you love to enjoy it, consume it. 
But, but we definitely need to look beyond the enjoyment of such sentimentality and examine, like, why are our hearts longing for such hope and joy and happy endings, whether it be a Hallmark movie or Buddy the Elf singing in Central Park? Like, we just eat this stuff up. There has to be something, someone stronger, deeper, more powerful, more solid than these surface sentimentalities. And, he, and the reality is, when your heart is truly captivated by something some, or someone so big, so great, so strong, so mighty, so universe-forming, so life-giving, when, when the deepest part of your being is captivated most by what is greatest, and that's what really your life is built on, then you can be free to enjoy this, this window surface, window shopping sentimentalities of the season without it grabbing your heart. Because you know that that's not really what it's about. I can enjoy hot chocolate and Hallmark movies and, and silly things knowing that deep down, this is about Jesus. This is about God. This is about the greatest realities of life. And you're not going to have your heart captivated by hot chocolate and eggnog and Hallmark movies because they will not save you. They will not sustain you. They will not be there beyond the holidays or when the reality of how hard life is sets in again. They give you joy that lasts but for a moment. We need something greater that lasts beyond this season that transcends pain, hurt, fear, shame, guilt, loneliness, and brokenness that is always lingering under the surface in our lives. And we hope and pray that our journey through Ruth over the next four weeks, starting last week, will be used by the Spirit of God to help do that as we gather and turn everything off and focus our minds and hearts on this incredible story. And it begins today in chapter 1 with a family that is not experiencing the sentimental joys of the holidays, but some of the deepest pain that we experience as humans, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Father, we thank you that you are greater than holiday sentimentality, that the joy and the hope that we get from you is so deep, so strong, it transcends everything. And so come today and help us to see and believe again, or maybe for some, for the first time. Father, we pray you would do this work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the opening words of this story tell us when it took place in the days when the judges ruled. Judges being the previous book of the Bible. You could really view Ruth as a bridge between the books of Joshua and Judges and Samuel and Kings. Historically, the nation of Israel had been formed when God called Abram in Genesis 12 that he would be a nation through which he would bless the world. Eventually, Abraham, Abram would be Abraham and blessed with a son, who would be blessed with a son, who would be blessed with many sons, and this nation would grow and flourish in the land of Egypt for whom they went when it was also another famine. 
They grew to be hundreds of thousands of people that would uh, put fear in the hearts of the Egyptians. And so they were enslaved by the Egyptians, eventually in Exodus, delivered by God through Moses and miracles, brought to the land flowing with milk and honey. God promised to Abram in Genesis 12 to live and enjoy being God's people under God's rule. Now, all this was spelled out in the first five books of the Bible. Joshua, the sixth book, tells us how they entered and conquered the promised land. And Judges tells us what happened to them as they continually failed to live up to their end of the covenantal agreement. You have this cycle in the book of Judges that characterizes the book. God's people rebel. They're punished. They cry out for help. God sends a deliverer, a judge like Gideon, Samson, Deborah. And they they save from their enemies. There's peace. Then they rebel. They're punished, delivered, restored. And on and on this continues through the entire book of Judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, they finally learn their lesson and they get it right. Now we're going to do it right. No, at the end of the book of Judges, it says everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. The entire country had gone wild. Not just wild, but buck wild. (laughs) All right, I said it. That was the only instructions I got from Kendrick. (laughs) Make sure I say that. Kevin? Everyone doing right in their own eyes. Like, where is God in all of this? Is he still in charge? Is there a plan in the chaos? Or is it like Mad Max in the Thunderdome? Who's in charge of this mess? Enter Ruth. Here comes the story of Ruth. An unlikely story of God's sovereign plan being carried out that would not be thwarted by sinful chaos of the land, but would in fact lead to their eventual deliverance and their king. And their well-being. No matter how messy and chaotic it seems, no matter how much it seems like sin and evil are winning, behind it all, through it all, God is moving and working and shaping everything just right. So His ultimate plans will be accomplished. So don't lose hope, but have hope. Hope in God. More people doing what seemed right in their own eyes included Elimelech and his family. There's famine in the land, probably judgment on, of God on his people for their sins. And Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, reveals that while that may be his name, it's not his lifestyle. He takes his family from Bethlehem, which means house of bread, to Moab because there's no bread in the land. It's hard in our context to understand how crazy that decision would be. Because, you know, we're Americans, we can go pretty much anywhere in the world. And, and most of the world makes it easy for us to come because we have money. We can spend and, and, and boister their economies. And as Christians as a church, we really get it because we want to go into all nations among all people groups and spread the gospel. So we don't think about, you shouldn't go to that land. But if you went to your family and said, hey, I, I can't find a job. I'm going to pack up and move to North Korea and see if it's better. You might get some idea as to how shocking it would be for a man to take his family to Moab. From Bethlehem. What? Why would you do that? Moab was not the place for God's people to be. A nation formed out of sin. You read about it in Genesis 20. I remember reading this story as an adolescent, this incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters in this cave, and I realized for the first time the Bible's not G-rated. Like, do my parents know this isn't the Bible? But Lot's daughters get him drunk. They have this incestuous encounter with him. And from their sons, Moab and Ammon are born. And they become two nations who were always the enemies of God's people. At one time in the wilderness wandering of God's people in Numbers 22 through 24, Moab's king, Balak, hired a prophet named Balaam to curse God's people. 
In Numbers 25, the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men and lead them to worship their false pagan gods. They had been used by God in Judges 3 to judge and oppress Israel. Moab is not the place you go to raise your family when your name is my God is king. Because you don't seem to be trusting that that's actually true. I'm king. I got to do it my way to help bail my family out of this famine. So here goes Elimelech with his family, running from a famine, not trusting the Lord to provide bread, but trusting his own wisdom and logic to make a plan to provide for themselves, even if it's in a land of God's enemies. Eventually, he dies. His wife is left with her two sons, Malon and Kilion. They take the rebellion and disobedience a step further by marrying Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Now, these guys live down to their names, which mean sickly ones are sickness and finished ones are death. And after 10 years of marriage, not only did they not produce any children, but they died. And Naomi is not only widowed, but she's childless, grandchildless, living with two Moabite widows. It's not the most wonderful time of the year in her life. In fact, it's a life filled with great pain. Picking up in verse 6. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now this might be a Hallmark movie. Three widows weeping, hugging, kissing, arguing. To Naomi, it's pretty simple, very logical. She heard the Lord had provided food for his people. I'll go back home. You girls stay here. Very common in that culture. Go back to the family of your origin and find and wait for new husbands. You're young. I'm old. This makes sense. We love you. We want to stay with you. Well, that's, that's sweet of you, but seriously, I'm cursed. God is against me. You don't want any more of this. You don't want to continue to be around me because more bad things might happen to you. Have you ever read Job? This may not end right now. Even if I could have more sons for you to marry, you can't wait around. So go home, be with your parents, and find new husbands. That's your hope. With me is death. Leave me, find hope. It's a pretty good argument. Very, very sound. Very wise. Very logical. Full of love, care, concern, wisdom. Orpah's convinced. She's like, all right, that makes sense. I'm out. Love you, but I'm going home. That's a good plan. Except for one thing. It wasn't necessarily God's plan. Yes, you and I can make sound, wise, logical, good plans that may not be the will of God. Which is why, no matter what we ever suggest as leaders or what you ever suggest for your life or for your house, it should always be followed by, not my will, but your will be done. 
Not that you literally have to say that every time like a formula, but it's your attitude. Here's a plan. It's a good plan, a wise plan, but the Lord has freedom to change it at any time because He is sovereign and I am not. He is wise and good and all-knowing and we are not. And in this case, Ruth would be the instrument through which God would accomplish His plan in Naomi's life. Even though she didn't see it, Naomi, or have a clue. Look back at verse 14. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi's airtight logical case could not push away Ruth's commitment and love for her. It's this speech that has endeared Ruth to believers for thousands of years. Like, who possibly loves their mother-in-law this much? Where does this kind of love and commitment come from other than the grace of God? And the convicting aspect of this was, was this. This was a Moabite, a foreigner, not God's chosen people. Like, she's more committed to this relationship than the Israelite, God's chosen people, is. And since we know the rest of the story, we know she's going to be the connecting piece of the puzzle, not only for God's redemption of Naomi and her family, but Israel itself through one day King David. And one day when Jewish people read a genealogy of Jesus and their Messiah, and they see this Moabite in the line of Christ, and they hear and they see her story, it washes away any justification for xenophobia or racism. Because God is working through all peoples to accomplish His purposes and bring about redemption. Ruth's story will be developed further, but here you see why she's such a catch for Boaz and such a blessing to Naomi. Now, Naomi is speechless. Like, okay, I can't argue with that. I give my best case. She's committed. Let's go home. And when she arrives, the whole town is stirred. Like, if you grew up in a small town, if you've ever lived in a small town, you get this. Literally, the whole town is stirred. There's not much to discuss, and even if there is a lot of world stuff to discuss, nothing is better to discuss in a small town than what's going on in the lives of the people who are in the small town, from the small town, coming back to the small town. Literally, the whole town is stirred. There's, the, the, Elimelech's move to Moab seems to have been a solo act, probably very shocking. At least 10 years have passed. No, Naomi comes back with no husband, no sons, just as a Moabite young lady. What in the world happened? She probably gave them the, the full story at some point. But all we have here is the name change. Don't call me Naomi, which means beautiful, pleasant, or good. Call me Mara, 
which means bitterly. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and I've come back empty. The Lord has brought calamity upon me. This is reminiscent of Job, who said in Job 27.2, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter? Or Job 6.4, For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Recognizing the sovereignty of God over this bitterness, that this is not bad luck, this is not chaos, this is not randomness, this is the Lord against me, and it's awful, bitter. One of the key themes throughout this book, as well as the rest of the Bible, is the sovereignty of God. We find this truth comforting when God is blessing us. We find it troubling when bad things are happening. We give God all the credit when all is good, and frankly, we don't know what to do when bad things occur. We know God isn't evil. We know He isn't responsible or held accountable for sin because He's always good, kind, wise, holy, just, and right. If God is evil or the source of evil, we have big problems. But to what degree is His involvement when evil or bad things happen, especially in the lives of His people? Now, this is a much deeper, longer theological exploration than we have time for in part of this sermon. But wherever you fall, God must still be good, holy, just, wise, right, and sovereign over all things. We and our choices are not equal with God. God never takes his hand off the steering wheel and allows Satan or us to drive. Satan has power and causes chaos, but he's on a leash and only allowed by God so much room to maneuver, as you see in the story of Job and Peter in Luke 22. We make real choices for which we are accountable, but even our real choices fall under the providence of God for His ultimate purpose and will for creation. So whether you are comfortable saying God permits or God allows or my preference God ordains, He is behind it all, always working, always moving, always taking all things good and bad and using them for our good and His glory. So, the language in Naomi can be said to be accurate because God is sovereign in ordaining her sorrow and her redemption. But is Naomi's assessment of the situation accurate? And that's where I want to drill down deeper this morning. Because the reality is, if you haven't already walked through a season of life like this, you will. There will be days in our lives where we would like to change our name to Merah. Call me Mara. The Lord seems to be against me. Because what I'm walking through by His providential will, what He has ordained for this season, whether by the consequences of my choices or the choices of others, is bitter and hard and full of calamity. I know He loves me, but it doesn't feel like He loves me right now. It feels like He's turned His back on me. And it is dark, and it is cold, and I am empty, and I got nothing, and I am withering away. We're a young church. It's likely there are some in this room who haven't been through these seasons yet, but please listen. It's coming. It's coming. And For those of us who have been through these seasons, they are coming again. I know this is not a very Christmassy message. You don't get all the warm fuzzies about this. Well, those places exist, and you can go to those places, and they'll shake pom-poms for you, and 
tell you how amazing you are and shoot t-shirts at you and make it snow. But we prefer to stick to the Bible who show God's people walking through amazing moments of closeness and intimacy with God, experiencing the blessing of God. And sometimes those moments are when everything seems to be going your way. And sometimes those moments are when you would like to change your name to Mara because it is bitter and hard and dark. Now, we, we know the rest of the story. We, we, we know, at least we think we know, that a happy ending is coming. And I don't want to ruin it for those guys who are going to preach those passages. But it, this story is, this is a very basic story. There's a problem. There's tension, climax, and resolution. And they live happily ever after. But don't forget, put yourself in Naomi's shoes. When the happy ending comes, her husband's still dead. Her kids are still dead. The pain is still there for her. It's not a pain that ever goes away. It's like a scar that never vanishes. It's always there because it has forever changed your life. And while the Lord certainly brings other joys and blessings so that the pain doesn't consume you, the scar remains. But at this point, Boaz, uh, Naomi doesn't see Boaz. She doesn't see food and provision and family and blessing. Right now, all she sees is bitterness. And the question for us this morning is this, where does Mara find hope? When we want to call, be called Mara, where do we find hope? Because even if we could get in a, a time machine and fly back into Naomi's life at this very moment, when she's calling herself Mara and say, hey, hey, we know the end of the story, Naomi. We know God's about to do this, this, and this. She might just punch us in the throat. Hope is not found in promises of our, of, our, of our circumstances getting better that are not based in reality. How do we know it's going to get better? How do we know Boaz is coming? How do we know food will be abundant? And so what can we see just from chapter 1, pretending like we don't know the rest of the story, that could give Mara hope and us hope when our days are bitter? In other words, I contend that in some very real ways, Naomi's assessment isn't entirely accurate, just as Typically, our assessments are not accurately accurate, truly accurate when we are in these seasons. What is she missing? Well, what is true is the pain and the bitterness. So when we are in these seasons or walking through these seasons with people we love, the biggest mistake that we can make is to invalidate someone's pain and sorrow. Her husband and sons are dead. Orpah is gone. This is real, genuine hurt. And sometimes one of the greatest ways we love each other is to simply sit in their shoes for a moment and sympathize with their pain. I can't tell you how many times I've seen in church people invalidate someone's sorrow because in their estimation, it's not that bad. Don't they know what I've been through? It's a lot worse. Could be worse. Get over it. Things are going to be worse. Like we really need to rediscover the seven-day ministry of Job's friends, those first seven days when they showed up and said nothing and sat with him. But in time when people are ready, then you can begin to proclaim the gospel to them. But sometimes we just need to weep with those who weep and sympathize with those who are broken. Naomi says that she went away full and came back empty. Really? Is that really true? Your husband led you away from God's land and God's people to a foreign land and a foreign people. Away from the land where God promised to be your God and provide you in complete denial of his name. My God is king. This is further demonstrated, this disobedience, when your sons married Moabite women. Now, they turned out to be gems. 
And God used them in mighty good ways. But the Israelites knew the story by heart of sons of of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac who had to travel long distances to find wives because the women around them were not fit to be their wives. That should have been what they would have done to truly be obedient along the lines of their father Abraham. So, Naomi, is it really true that you walked away full just because you had food for your belly? And and you say you came back empty? You're coming back to the land of your inheritance, back to your people who have laws that God has given them to care for widows, and and Naomi and Ruth are about to be the recipients of these gracious laws that God has established, laws which did not exist in the same way in other nations, laws which show mercy to the poor and destitute and helpless, and you're coming back in this land that is now full of grain and bread again to feast on the blessings of God, and you're coming back with this Moabite that you didn't even mention by name when they, they said, hey, Naomi's back. The narrator had to mention her by name. She who's been the greatest demonstration in your life of God's faithful covenant keeping has said love, commitment. And you're really saying that you're coming back empty? Like the pain of Mara is so real, but the reality of Mara is never as bitter as it seems. And we know this by contrasting Naomi's reaction to Job. Job in one day loses everything but his life and his wife. Seven kids, dead. Crops, wealth, livestock, destroyed, stolen, consumed. Eventually his health is even taken from him and he's inflicted with great pain. And Job didn't change his name to Merah. He worshipped. Job 1, 20-22, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job 2, 9 through 10. His wife said to him when he was inflicted with the painful boils, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, what was the difference? Both horrible situations, but the same God. The difference is where their eyes were fixed and where they chose to fix their eyes. Job would say in Job 19, 23-27, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me, and all Naomi sees is bitterness. Job's circumstances did not change, and he confesses faith in his Redeemer, who will one day stand upon the earth. Naomi's circumstances would have to change before she could say that, before she could have this kind of faith. The beauty of it all is this. It's the same God working in both situations. And it's gracious. He is gracious to provide redemption and provision in both situations. Not in a cookie-cutter fashion like we're all the same, but in a tailor-made way to each person to be and give exactly what they need exactly when they need it just like a good dad and a good parent does. Whose kids aren't all the same. So while we love them all, we don't treat them all the same. 
but we tailor our love to who they are and what they need. In a much greater way, our Father does the same with us. God had not only provided Naomi a companion who was a model of his said, his committed covenant-keeping love, his never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Ruth is a picture of that, an instrument of that love to Naomi. She doesn't see it or embrace it right now, but in Ruth, God is loving Naomi with this kind of love and loving his people, his nation, who are also not responding in love and devotion but doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, like Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. But this is who God is. This is how he treats us, and this is how he showers his love on us. And this is how we can swim and rest and be filled with hope, because no matter how bitter it gets, he has not left us. He is with us, and he is working. You are not alone. He is working. He is providing. He is ordaining events for your good. He is so gracious. You can be like Naomi and not see it. And want to change your name. And want to quit. And want to run away. And not see the blessings of God. And only see the pain. And guess what? He's still working and shaping and doing things behind the scenes for your good. Because that's what a good father does. And one day, like Naomi... You will see it, and you will embrace it, because you will feel his embrace. That's where we're always headed as his children. And one of the most gracious things that he's done for you is give you us, each other, the community of God's people. So we can read and hear and see stories of his gracious provision. So we can look at each other and say, you're not alone. We're going to walk with you through this. No matter how long it takes, no matter how hard it gets, we will remain by your side because he never leaves us. We never leave each other. So we can proclaim his goodness and his grace continually to each other so we can weep together and rejoice together and worship together. Like I got to experience that myself this past week through a brother in Christ. Friday was a chaotic day at the end of a chaotic week and a seemingly never-ending chaotic season for us. And I went to meet a new hospice patient who's dying. I wouldn't be surprised if he makes it to Christmas. Spent most of our visit, he did, in tears. Why was he crying? He was sad that he was dying. He was sad he was going to leave his family at Christmas time. None of that. He was overwhelmed by God's love. Overwhelmed that he could hardly talk Seeing the reality of his sin over his 70 plus years of life, but seeing the reality of God's grace and full pardon. I can't believe he would die for me. This guy loved music and he he wanted to tell me his four favorite hymns that he once sung at his funeral. Come thy fount of every blessing, a mighty fortress is our God, it is well with my soul. And he could never remember the fourth one. But as we sang those songs together, his tears just flowed and how God was so good and gracious in his life. Jesus would die for me, he kept saying. A man on the doorstep of death, full of eyes of faith, to see the greater, truer, deeper reality, that there was one who came from heaven to earth full of glory and emptied himself, truly full and truly empty, so that we who are truly empty, have nothing to offer him, can be full 
and filled up completely with the bread of heaven. That one who never did what was right in his own eyes, but always did what the Father had given him to do, experienced the full bitterness of the Lord, the full calamity of God's wrath on the cross, so that we who continually sin can experience the fullness of his grace and love and mercy forever, always never ceasing, on our good days and in our worst days. Hope for Mara was there all along for Naomi. It was Jesus. She just didn't see it yet. She would. Her Redeemer is coming. For us, He has come. This is what Advent is about. The Redeemer has come. And we're even looking forward. He's coming again. So even the bitterness and sorrow and pain that we experience now is not going to last forever. It really is going to get better. Like I told this guy, just he's weeping and he's talking and rejoicing and celebrating the Lord. I'm like, man, you are going to love heaven. It's going to be amazing. See Jesus, church. Embrace him. Be embraced by him. Rest and enjoy his love in a deeper, greater, life-changing way. And if by God's grace you're sitting here this morning and, and his love has never changed your life, he is ordained that you would be here today. It's not luck. It's not happenstance. It's not coincidence. There is none of those things if God is sovereign. So see your sins, that they are great. See Jesus. He's greater. As bad as your sins are, His power is greater to overcome your sins and pay the price for your sins. And repent, turn from your sins, and receive His salvation, His love, His forgiveness, His life, His hope, His joy. Celebrate Christmas as never before because it's rooted in Him, the one who's come, the one who's coming again. This is hope. And if today is the day of your salvation, tell us before you leave. We would love to walk you through believer's baptism and declare this to the world that you are now a follower of Jesus. If you want to talk more, if you're struggling with all of this, grab about anybody here and we will take you to lunch. And let's talk more about the good news of Jesus. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus is here. We thank you that Jesus' power to save and redeem and rescue sinners has not changed one bit. It's as strong as ever. We pray, Father, that we, as your people, would experience it in greater, more abundant, more joy-producing ways than ever before. That it would transcend some of the silliness of this season, that it would transcend the pain and hurt of life, and that we truly would be different because we live with hope no matter what we face. God, help us. I pray especially for those who are sitting here this morning and who could call out for their name to be changed to Mara because it is so hard and bitter right now. Father, I ask that you would overwhelm them with your love, grace, and mercy. Help them to see Jesus and be embraced by him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1873, a man by the name of Horatio Spafford received a telegram from his wife, who was in England. The telegram said, Saved alone, what should I do? 
Horatio was a Chicago businessman. He had a wife, five kids, four daughters and a son. The son had died already of pneumonia a few years earlier. His wife and daughters got on a ship to sail to England to spend a holiday. The ship struck another ship. And the four daughters went to a watery grave. The wife alone was one of the few survivors on this ship. Some 220 people died. She sent that telegram to her husband. Of course, he got on a ship immediately to go be with his wife. And when the ship got over the spot where his daughters were buried, the captain called him into his cabin and said, this is the spot where the ship went down. It was on that journey that Horatio Spafford wrote the song that we're about to sing. We don't know if he ever called out Mara. He certainly could have. But we know he wrote this song. So as we sing, see where his hope was rooted in one of the most difficult seasons of life.